This morning we continue our series on the third day. Pastor Brian kicked it off last week. If you missed it, don't miss it. Click onto our website. It was a wonderful kickoff to an important series that we want to engage on the third day because Easter, the resurrection is too good of news to be relegated to one day a year. Would you agree? I mean, come on. This is the whole foundation for our faith. We sang earlier, a mighty fortress is our God. The foundation, the Apostle Paul says, of our faith is not just Jesus' death on the cross. It is his resurrection from the dead. Now, Scripture is full of third-day stories. Think about it. In Genesis, Isaac is spared from sacrifice on the third day. In Exodus, the people see God's glory on the third day. In Hosea, they are rescued from the Babylonians on the third day. Jonah is spit up by that giant fish. Third day. And on the hinge of history, Jesus' resurrection swings wide open the door to new life on the third day. But what happens if you have some questions about that third day? This morning, I want to talk about disbelief and doubt about that third day. And I want to start by talking about that phrase, the benefit of the doubt. Anybody heard that phrase before, the benefit of the doubt? When was the last time you gave someone the benefit of the doubt? Maybe you gave them a phone call, but they didn't pick up, and then they didn't call back. Now, it's easy to jump to conclusions, right? To question the nature of your friendship, to question their commitment to you, or you can give them the benefit of the doubt. You can choose to believe that maybe they'd had a busy day at work. Maybe they were having a difficult time with their family. Maybe you even called the wrong number or forgot to leave a voicemail letting them know how urgent it was that you wanted to hear from them. A recent study published last year found that when we are willing to give the benefit of the doubt, we are both happier and healthier than when we don't. Benefit of the doubt givers have those higher rates of well-being, healthier relationships as opposed to those who play the blame game. Now, how does this relate to our relationship with God? How does the third day of Jesus' resurrection change the benefit of the doubt? We pick up the story in John chapter 20, verse 19. If you have a Bible, grab it, read along with me. It will be on the screen uh, if you need it uh, there. John tells us, it was on the evening of that first day of the week, that third day, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Now this is important. Remember this scene when Jesus first arrives and reveals himself to his disciples. It's only then that the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord, after he'd shown them his hands and his side. See, seeing is believing, believing is seeing, and the result is joy. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Notice, notice, Jesus comes to them, Jesus cares for them, Jesus comforts them, and then Jesus commissions them. 
to go out and to bring healing to a hurting world. Now, let's be really clear on one thing, though. They are not producing forgiveness. They are proclaiming forgiveness, right? Now, the word John uses for breath is the same word for both wind and spirit in both the Hebrew and the Greek. It's the same word used when God breathed into Adam to bring his body to life. It's the same word that Jesus breathed when he died on the cross. He breathed out. And it's the same word Jesus uses now, that wind, that breath, that spirit of the risen Jesus sends them out to a hurting world with healing and wholeness. But John tells us they weren't all there. He explains, now Thomas, called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now, three different times throughout John's account, John reminds us of Thomas's nickname, Didymus. In John 11, we read Thomas, also known as Didymus. In John 20, Thomas, also known as Didymus. Later in John 21, Thomas, also known as Didymus. Now, this isn't like calling Robert Bob or even a tall person stretch. (laughs) Didymus means twin. And while we celebrate twins, in the ancient world, twins were a bad omen. Twins made birth more dangerous. Twins made calculating the inheritance more difficult. It was not an easy division. Half goes to each. In Greek, there is a connection between this nickname, twin, and the word doubt. It's just like the word double. Those first four letters are shared between doubt and double. You see it even in the English language. To doubt is to double. To doubt is to be of two minds. Chinese culture describes a person with a foot in two boats. The Guatemalan language uh, speaks of a person whose heart is divided into two. So it's no mistake that he's been given the nickname Doubting Thomas. Oh yeah, Didymus, the twin, with his foot in two boats, with his heart in two pieces. Notice, Thomas would not give the benefit of the doubt. A week later, We pick it up in verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Well, I should say so, Thomas. Don't miss Sunday dinner again. Though the doors were locked, again, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. A literal translation here of Jesus' words implies movement in one direction or another. Stop becoming believing and get on with believing. There's an implicit progression in Jesus' words, one direction or another. Thomas had been going one way. Jesus invites him to make a U-turn and head back the other way. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God, Then Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, Thomas is also seen as a skeptic who wants the full picture to prove it. 
Thomas says, essentially, I'm going to suspend judgment. I'm not going to commit myself until I see sufficient evidence. Thomas doesn't want to run the risk of being wrong. He doesn't want to give the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't want to be hurt or look naive. Like someone who's told the word gullible isn't in the dictionary. And so they run to grab one off the shelf to prove you wrong. My favorite skeptic story takes place during the French Revolution when the reign of terror prompted executions left and right. Three men were to be executed. They were brought before the guillotine. The first, the priest, was asked if he has any last words. The priest replied, I believe God is going to save me. Now his head was put into the place and the blade was dropped from high above but stopped just an inch above his neck. It's a miracle, the executioner proclaimed. And so they let him go. The second man, also a priest, came forward and and his head put in place and he was asked, do you have any last words? I do. I believe God is going to save me too, just like the last guy. And again, the blade was dropped from high above but stopped just an inch above his neck. Oh my gosh, another miracle. God is really watching out for his people. The third man was like Thomas, though, Like Didymus, he was a skeptic. He was not sure about this whole faith thing. So he was brought forward and not sure if he wanted to be associated with these priests. Do you have any last words? Well, it was important for him to be right, not to look gullible. I do have some last words. And pausing and looking up at the guillotine, he said, I think I see your problem. There's something jammed in the gear mechanism. See, even at his own expense, he wanted to be right. And the same is true of Thomas. Even at Thomas's own expense, he wanted to be right. He didn't want to look gullible. He didn't want to be hurt. He didn't want to get his hopes up in this Jesus. He may have thought that Jesus was like all those other would-be messiahs. All those other people who proclaimed the good news, but whose deaths brought the end of their movement. But I think Thomas gets a little bit of a bad rap. I think his nickname is Undeserved. I do. I don't think Thomas stands in two boats at once. I don't think his heart is divided in two. Oswald Chambers once put it this way. He said, doubt is not always a sign that a man is wrong. It may be a sign that someone is just thinking. Ever been there before? And somebody tells you, stop doubting, just believe. And you're like, whoa, pump the brakes. I have a brain. I have a heart. I have a God who can reveal things to me in his good time. I'm convinced Thomas was thinking. I think Thomas just wanted what everyone else had already received. Remember, he wasn't there that first Sunday dinner when Jesus showed up and he showed them his hands and his side. Thomas wanted to experience the same thing his friends had. And so I love that Jesus comes for Thomas right where he's at. I love that Jesus returns again, even when he's already seen everyone else. Again, Jesus comes to him. Jesus cares for him. Jesus comforts him. And then Jesus commissions him in the same way. Jesus offers Thomas exactly what Thomas wanted. Thomas wanted to see his hands and his side. What did Jesus do? Here's my hands. Here's my side. There's a long history of artistic representation of this scene, and for good reason. There's Serodine. There's Caravaggio. One of my favorites is a little bit more metaphorical. Notice how the line on the road 
and the crack in the pavement reveal a cross. And, and notice how the car that this man has exited is precariously straddling that break in the road. In other words, his own existence is in jeopardy while he discerns and decides. But notice, John never tells us whether Thomas actually reached out and touched Jesus. It may have just been his words and the sound of his voice. All we know is Thomas's response. Jesus says, hey, listen, don't have a foot in two boats. Don't have a heart in two. Stop becoming believing, becoming unbelieving, and become believing. And Thomas replies, my Lord and my God. R.C. Sproul explains it this way. He says, Thomas gave the highest confession of faith in Jesus that we read anywhere in Scripture. In a posture of worship, of reverence, of adoration, Thomas did not call Jesus teacher or master or even Messiah, God's anointed one, the Christ. No, Thomas confessed that Jesus was Yahweh, his God, standing before him in the flesh. And there it is, friends. There it is. That's the benefit of the doubt. There it is, taking time to think about it a little bit, saying what he wanted from Jesus, and Jesus responded to show him, look, here's my hands, here's my side. Don't be afraid to believe it. It's true. Because Thomas wanted to see what everyone else had already received, and Jesus knew that desire, so Jesus came to him, comforting him, caring for him, commissioning him. Don't stand in two boats. Don't have your heart in two. Stop becoming unbelieving and become believing. Stop going that way, turn around, and come back this way. Because of the third day, Jesus' earliest disciples gave their lives for the proclamation of the gospel, of the good news. They went out into a hurting world to bring healing and hope. They made possible God's blessing for other people to believe even though they hadn't seen. Because Jesus came to them, comforted them, cared for them, commissioned them, We have received God's blessing. We are like those Jesus thought about that day who have believed even though we have not yet seen because of the faithfulness of those who did see. I find great comfort that even those earliest disciples wrestled with some sense of doubt. There is no seminary class that pastors take that takes away all semblance of doubt. There are times when we experience it too. I find great comfort that even those earliest disciples had some sense of doubt. And maybe that's why we're told over and over that Thomas was called Didymus. Maybe it's not so much about him being the twin, having his heart in two, standing in two boats. Maybe maybe John is trying to help us recognize the ways that we mirror his disbelief. The way that we are like his twin, mirroring his doubt. Because we too often find ourselves behind closed doors, locked in disbelief. But John wants us to know that the risen Jesus can meet us behind those doors to invite us into an even deeper and even stronger faith. We often think of doubt as the opposite of faith, don't we? I'm convinced that that's wrong. Um, Anne Lamott once said that the opposite of doubt is not faith. The opposite of doubt is certainty. 
We often think of doubt as the opposite of faith. But again, another quote, Frederick Buechner once said, if you don't have any doubts, you're either kidding yourself or you're asleep. He went on. This is even better. He said, doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. I mean, put the two together. Anne Lamott says, listen, the opposite of doubt is not faith, it's certainty. If you're certain about a thing, if you're certain about what you believe, will you continue trying to learn more? Will you continue asking big questions? If you are so certain of everything you know in your head, will you be propelled like those earliest disciples to go out to a hurting world with with hope and healing? I think not. I think if we were completely certain, we would be apathetic. See, doubt are the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and moving. They keep us asking big questions and asking Jesus to meet us behind those closed doors that are locked. That's what Thomas wanted, and I think that's what we want too. A faith that is awake and is moving, that is engaging, that's asking big questions. Now, our culture, in our culture, doubt and disbelief are very trendy. It is very cool to be used to something or or used to do something or be something or believe something. We are in a post-culture. Post this, post that, used to this, used to that. It's very trendy, very cool to say my own individual expression or personal evolution has caused me to leave behind this or that or the other thing. But Jesus invites us to stop becoming unbelieving and to start becoming believing. Jesus invites us to turn around, to come back toward a rich and robust faith in him. Now that often involves engaging the reality of our doubt, engaging those ants in our pants, and allowing Jesus, asking Jesus to meet us behind those doors that are closed and locked. Take it from Thomas. His doubt was an opportunity for an even deeper faith. That's why Thomas sees the benefit of the doubt. That's why Thomas makes the strongest confession of anywhere in the scriptures. He let those ants in his pants keep him awake and moving. Instead of water skiing along the surface, Thomas was scuba diving down into the depths of God's goodness. But this can only happen for us if we also mimic Thomas, if if we're honest and authentic, if only if we willingly name our doubts and disbelief. I think there's a number of things we can do if we're in a season of doubt and disbelief. And you may not be there now, but think about these things if you are, or if you know someone who is. To allow Jesus behind those doors of our doubt, I think we need to first know ourselves, to understand who we are, See, Thomas knew his nickname. He knew what people thought of him. He knew they called him Doubting Thomas, the twin, a foot in two boats, a heart divided in two. He knows his history. John Calvin put it this way, without knowledge of the self, there is no knowledge of God. And without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of the self. So our doubts come from particular places. And we have to know ourselves to know where they may have emerged from. So that's the first one, if we're doubting, to know ourselves And the second one is an ability to feel what we really feel. Thomas knows not only who he is intellectually or what other people think about him, he knows how he feels, and he expresses it openly. Sometimes we try to hide our feelings, 
especially if our feelings include doubt. But the church must be a judgment-free zone where we continue to gather behind those doors and allow every, anyone in wherever they're at. Notice, the disciples didn't say, hey, you didn't believe us the first time. You can't come over this week. You're out. No, he's there this week. That means they've continued to do life with him. They've continued to allow him to be a part of the community. They've continued to invite him over for Sunday dinner. So we need to know ourselves. We need to be honest with how we feel, feel what we feel. Third, I think we need to do what Thomas did and stay connected. One of the things that happens if we doubt or if we we disbelieve is, is we can pull away from community. We can pull away from church. We can disconnect. But instead, we need to do the opposite. Because solitude brings a special kind of despair. After a year like the one we've had, you know exactly what I mean, right? Solitude brings a special kind of despair, but the disciples continue to gather together. Two other things we can do if we're doubting or struggling in disbelief. One is to practice discernment. It's to ask big questions. How do we really know what we know? Jesus uh, comes to Thomas and shows his hands reveals his side. Well, how do we know what we read in Scripture? How do we know what we can ask for in prayer? We need to be willing to ask those big questions if we're struggling with doubt and disbelief because there are answers. And yet we only get those answers if we're willing to ask the question. And lastly, lastly, if we're struggling with doubt and disbelief, we need to be ready for repentance. And I don't mean repentance in a way that Jesus is going to come to us and is going to admonish us and scold us and wag his finger at us for disbelief and doubt. It doesn't happen for Thomas, and it won't happen for us. But what does he say? Stop becoming unbelieving and become believing. Be ready to repent. Be willing to return, to to turn around and head back the other direction. We live in a world that now more than ever, we're told to live our own truth, but to allow Jesus behind our doors closed and locked, we need to be able and need to allow him to change our minds, to see things in a whole new light. If we do these things, we can, like Thomas, receive the benefit of the doubt and have an even stronger faith because of it. Over the past year, I've been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my son. I had never done so before. Um, And there are some parts of the Chronicles of Narnia that are a little bit confusing, but Moses explains them to me. (laughs) At one point, there's a character. He's 10. He's he's got me beat in a number of ways. At, At one point, there's a character named Shasta. And Shasta tries to escape a foreign land, but on his journey, everything goes wrong, just like when Thomas missed that first Sunday dinner. Everything's going wrong for Shasta, and at one point he finds himself in a fog, and there's a mysterious presence leading himself through it. And he doesn't know what this presence is, but there's a kind of voice that he's interacting with, and he says to this mysterious presence, this strange voice that he can't quite explain, he says, don't you think it was bad luck that I met so many lions back there? And the voice replies, there was only one lion. Shasta says, what on earth do you mean? And the voice says, I was the lion. Shasta gasped, and the voice continued, I was the lion who forced you to join in with Erebus. I was the cat who comforted you in the house of the dead. I was the one who drove the jackals away from you while you slept. You don't remember that, do you? 
I was the lion who gave the horses a new strength for the last mile so that you could reach King Loon in time. I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you slept, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, awake at midnight, ready to receive you. I was the lion. There are times in our lives when we look around and we say, man, wasn't that bad luck? All these lions? And God says, I'm the lion. Finding so many different forms to continue to encourage you along. Even when you're behind those doors, closed and locked, I was the lion, and there is the benefit of the doubt. May we be honest with whatever difficulties and doubts, may we know the benefit of that doubt, and may we engage them authentically. May we be like Thomas, seeing the benefit of that doubt, and and thus proclaiming the good news of the risen Jesus, my Lord and my God. God, we give you thanks for the good news of Easter, that on that third day the grave could not hold him. How good it is to be able to gather together this morning, in person and online, to remember the foundation of our faith. And God, we all experience doubt and disbelief in one form or another. We all hide ourselves behind those doors closed and locked at one time or another. Would you help us to see the benefit of the doubt? Would you help us to engage them, those questions we have, engaging them deeply, knowing that as we ask those questions, there are answers, knowing that as we seek to follow after you, you will lead us. We give you thanks this morning for the good news of this Jesus, that on the third day he was raised again, that we can follow him, that he can meet us, bringing care and comfort and commissioning us to go out to a hurting world with healing and wholeness and hope. May it be so in his name and for his sake. Amen.